Welcome to the Play Ed Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play. Hello, and welcome to the Play Ed Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Laura, and with me here is our other host, Chris. Howdy. And I am so excited to be talking and welcoming you all to our podcast. This is our inaugural episode of Play Ed. And Chris. Laura. <laughs> yes. Can you tell me why we went ahead and went with that game name for the podcast? So for me, play has been integral to learning, education, for as long as I can remember. Uh, playing games as a kid, playing games in school as a supplement to education, really opened up a whole lot of what I remember about my childhood, the good memories at least. Um, Always important to make that distinction. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I have been playing games for over 30 years, intentionally so. Strategy games, board war games, hex and chit, uh, miniatures war games, role-playing games, video games. Um, I started playing cards and chess and stuff as a little kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, five or six years old, my stepdad taught me chess um, as a way of getting to know each other. As, as you know, I mean, he was my stepdad, so it took a while for us to get to, to kind of warm to one another. Chess was a big part of that. Um, in middle school, I had some phenomenal experiences where I got access to... Um, A really interesting school, and as part of studying things like ancient Greece and Rome and the Middle Ages, um, we played a lot of board games uh, during school, after school, and that left an impression on me. In high school, I did a lot of simulation-type games like Debate and Mock Trial and Moot Court, and um, uh, there was a, a UN simulation game that we played um, that I believe is still ongoing. Moving on, even into college, games continue to be part of recreation as well as education. Into grad school, when I was doing my MBA recently, we had games and simulations that were an integral part of the MBA program. And as we've talked about it, as we've raised our own kids, um, games are a huge part of our family life. How we interact with each other, how we interact with our kids, how we spend time with our friends when we're outside of the sort of online world so many of us exist in. And the more we've discussed it, it became clear that play in all of its forms is the best way to go about doing education. Whether you're the primary educator, you send your kids to school, or whatever, you just want to get together and learn something about something else, you can do it through play much more effectively than any other uh, means at your disposal. And so play ed is play leading to education, and that brings up a whole world of things. There are theater games, there's improvisation, there's sports and athletics, there's board games, card games, video games, gamified apps that help reinforce certain behaviors. Mm -hmm. I've actually got, I have an app that I discovered, I can't even remember where, but it was something about people who tend to have, who have ADHD or ADD. 
trying to do basic daily tasks can be really, really hard. And so it was an app that was designed around, I think it was creating some sort of like little creature that you could, you know, send off on quests and you could improve its its weapons and armor and things. And you won points to improve it by, I washed the dishes today. I remembered to water my plant. And it created that gamification for doing basically daily tasks. So instead of it being a chore, it was something that won the day when you just remembered to do the really basic things that your scattered brain otherwise can't keep on, on focused on. It really is amazing how ordinary life can be transformed when you're willing to make games out of things and willing to relax and have fun and not worry, is this silly, is this stupid, or beat yourself up because you couldn't get something done. You find a way to make it a game and, you know, it ends up being that kind of spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down that, that Mary Poppins sang in our childhood memories. And I think that actually leads to where I really wanted to talk about today. And I'm glad we are sort of on focus here for the moment that, you know, if what you're going to be hearing on this podcast is us talking about play and how it relates to education. But that idea of a spoonful of sugar reminded me of one of the things that you've frequently explained to people when we talk about we homeschool. And one of the ways that we homeschool, you know, we've got a lot of traditional methods there is a world of times when you really just have to do the worksheet just so you've got a record of what you did or, you know, writing down is one way to reinforce information. But there's also a way that we homeschool that doesn't necessarily look like school when you see it happening. If you had someone walk into our house in the middle of the day and you see a bunch of kids at a table playing a board game, not everyone's first instinct is, ah, they are in class. Ah, uh, yes. Stealth homeschooling. I have talked about this endlessly to all the people I, I hang out with in meat space. So, um, yeah, stealth homeschooling is what I've called it because it doesn't look like school, uh, especially if you went to a fairly normal school where you sat at a desk, you did worksheets, you listened to a teacher who stood up at the board and they lectured and maybe they drew some diagrams and they assigned homework and you lugged 400 pounds of books in your backpack and you got crapped on on the uh, school bus or, you know, whatever. I, I, was, I was 11 years old and I was navigating public transit as an unaccompanied minor through the city of Philadelphia. At 11 years old, mm. with 400 pounds of books on my back, I, it was it was ridiculous. But it taught me a lot of wonderful things. But the good memories I have are about the games that I was playing and the things I still remember about history, literature, um, philosophy, science, uh, all the all the the subjects and interests. Those all came out of playing games that reinforced ideas or taught those concepts mm -hmm. and that's where i started getting the idea as we started homeschooling our kids and talking with other people there are all kinds of homeschoolers and this is not just a podcast for homeschoolers because my idea of stealth homeschooling is that anyone can do this are you a parent you love your kids you want to spend more time with them stealth homeschooling can do it 
You're a grandparent. You see your kids every once in a while. You're a parent with, with joint custody, and so you only see your kids once a, every two weeks for, for a weekend from Friday through Sunday evening or Monday morning. Stealth homeschooling is an option no matter who you are, where you are. Because it's enrichment. Even if, even if homeschooling isn't the primary way you're educating, there are always things that you can do from home that are able to offer enrichment. We, we had friends who were talking about what they had learned in their history class, and, and we're like, that, that sort of describes the Romans, but there's an awful lot more there, and that was that realization of no matter what you learn in school, there's always going to be gaps. Um, and the beauty of a game is that it's the sort of thing that can fill in those gaps and what I think about the thing about stealth homeschooling that's so magical is it can help when you've become disengaged with school. Yeah. Yeah, it can definitely help those students who are, because of bad experiences in the classroom, resistant to quote-unquote traditional or normal methods of instruction. And that's part of the magic it can reach people who otherwise don't want to be reached. Um, not unlike the idea C.S. Lewis mentions in one of his essays about uh, sneaking past the watchful dragons, that there are ideas that people are hostile to, not because the idea is bad, but because they have a prejudice against the source. And so if you have a student who's resistant to math, as I was a student resistant to math, I hated my math classes. I didn't realize that playing Dungeons and Dragons for 20 years was going to give me an intuitive enough grasp of statistics that I could ace classes in finance and statistics and economics and then work professionally in that environment for over a decade. And so you were able to have this this strange dual thing in your head. On the one hand, an experience from school that says, I'm not mathy. Yeah. I mean, everyone, raise your hand if you were one of those people who became convinced, I'm not mathy, because there was some math class where you had an idea and it didn't make sense. And with math, I'm certain everyone has had one of those moments where you stared at the board and you stared at the equation or the drawing and you said, how does this connect? It makes no sense. And you just moved on, and you never understood that concept. And maybe by contrast, especially with the emphasis the last 10 or 15 years on STEM education, what if you've got a kid who's shut down because they've decided they can't do English, or they can't learn a foreign language? Well, the problem is they can. If it's approached correctly, if it's approached through games, if it's approached through play, especially if they're unaware that what they're doing is learning. Mm -hmm. They're not aware they're being educated, and they're not aware because they are discovering for themselves something they didn't know before. And because of the game, they have they get an endorphin rush out of success, and they want to do more. And so the game becomes a self-reinforcing way for a person to teach himself or herself something they didn't know before. Okay. So I was going to think, you know, example of how does this happen? And the first thing that comes to my mind is Monopoly. Okay. So I'm starting here, one, because I'm going to guess that 
98% of our audience has played this game. Knowing that most statistics are just made up on the spot. <laughs> no doubt. But it's, it's got to be the most common game. And it's been around for ages. It's one of those things that is multi-generational. You can even go with something simpler as tic-tac-toe. But Monopoly's good because it's, it's widespread. It's well-known, at least in North America. And it's got a very, very good... Uh, complexity level mm -hmm. relative to what we're talking about. So my first thought was place value is one of the most tricky concepts in early math for children to learn. What are all these zeros doing and why on earth do you, does moving a, a number along the track change it from a value of 1 to a value of 10 to a value of 100 or 1000? Almost makes me want to go back and play with Roman numerals because they didn't have a zero to play with. Yes. And it's one of those things that can be a little tricky. Well, once you look at your bank of money that you can play with in Monopoly, and you realize that it's arranged in groups of tens and twenties and fifties and hundreds and five hundreds, you're starting to work with quantities that are very intuitive and that give you a reason to learn place value because your child has to start looking at all that stack of tens and realize that 10 tens is the same as 100. And as they start having to strategically figure out, can I buy that property? Can I, where do I need to go? And what rents are gonna get me what I want? How do I pick up what I want? They have to learn place value. And it has right. to make sense. And it gives an incentive to learn it beyond fill out the worksheet and get an A rather than a B. Okay. That makes sense. And and I think that the thing about games is that with memorization and most of what you're learning in school is either memorizing facts or learning skills. And both of them require repetition. With a skill, you need repetition just to, you know, get better at doing the thing the correct way. Mm -hmm. Imitate the model until you do that. So in art class, you're drawing lines until you can draw straighter, more even lines or better um, have the shape of the bird look like the real bird that you're trying to draw. In chemistry, you draw those, those, those models of molecules joining and stuff. I never could keep that stuff straight. But the other half of it is memorizing bodies of information and then being able to manipulate them. And with memory, there are things that are, that affect memory. One of them is repetition. How many times have you heard this thing? Because if you've heard, said the Pledge of Allegiance once, you probably can't repeat it back. But if you say it every day, every morning for 12 years, you could probably recite that until the day you die. Good point. Good point. Another you repetition. The other thing that you have is intensity. And intensity can be something like a threat, you know, hold a gun to your head and say, if you can't remember the times, the three times tables in the next hour, I'm going to shoot you or your family. You're going to learn your three times tables. Oh, my. <laughs> Boy, that got dark fast. <laughs> yes. Like I said, but there's other ways. All to of a sudden, I'm sitting here in the Godfather. Either your brains or your times tables are going to be on that paper. Wow. <laughs> But the other way you can get intensity is through humor or through a less dark threat. The I win if I learn the times tables is a lot more of an incentive for most children than I win by getting an A or a gold star. And even a gold star system is, is better than just 
hooray, you got them right. Gold star is even better when it leads to an ice cream sundae or Mm -hmm. or that that blind bag toy you desperately, desperately want. But with with having that, the the beauty of a game is that it creates not only repetition, but it creates a sense, a reason why you want to learn the thing. Well, fundamentally, it can create an economic system. There's reward and there's punishment, and you have to master the material the game represents. Mm Mm-hmm. And so with Monopoly, to get back to that, your child who has probably been having difficulty with place value because it's just, it's making sense and it's making their head swim, step back, play a game, play a game where you know place value is going to be involved and then help them and give them the repetition of every time they buy a property. How much money do you need for it? Ten tens is a hundred. And those little things are going to build up because you have the repetition, but it's not the repetition of a drill or a worksheet or the dreaded timed test. I hated those timed test things. It's something that's giving that repetition and it's giving some incentive, a reason why they want to learn it so that they put the effort in. Because the thing I've always heard every parent complain is, man, if my kid put the effort into his schoolwork that he puts into X video game that he loved, he would be amazing. Well, the fact is the video game gives a reward. In a way that school doesn't. It's interesting you mentioned that, 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 that repetition, because the advantage that Monopoly, for example, has if in, the, in the teaching of place value, again, for example, over those worksheets, those time tests, that, that drill, and, and by no means am I against rote memorization, uh, in that I'm definitely out of step with the educational establishment. I think rote memorization has its place. But if you're trying to teach an abstract concept, with children especially, but even with adults, you need to start with the concrete. Until that child has converted 10 tens into one 100, hundreds of times by playing Monopoly or other games that involve that kind of thing, they're going to struggle with the abstract concept. If they've done it practically, concretely, all of a sudden, when you explain this abstract concept of place value, they go, oh. So, you know, do we just play Monopoly with our kids to teach them math? No, we have a program that we use that stresses a lot of concrete activity built around using an abacus. But interestingly enough, that same uh, math program also play, has a lot of games. Most of them are card games that they've specially developed, and they have lots of them. They've got recommendations for games over the summer to play to reinforce and keep that sense of um, math alive even during the break in the school year so that you don't have that brain turn to mush syndrome. Right, right. And I am certain we are going to be talking about them in other episodes Absolutely. because math games are a huge area where gamifying the the learning makes for more effective learning. And I think the thing that is important is that gamifying learning doesn't just help you to sneak past the watchful dragons, get past the child who's turned off of math and realize that at the end of the day, oh, that thing you've been doing all day, that was fractions, that was decimals, that was place value, that thing that- And you didn't realize it. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is one aspect of it, but it's also the effectiveness, that if you're looking at it, it's not just effective, it's, it's not just effective in the sense that it teaches it, it teaches it in a way that sticks. Right. And I think what happens, 
And it happens somewhere around 12 or 13 when we hit the age of not believing. Here I am bringing in Disney songs again. Um, but there comes that point when we want to be adults. And we want to be serious. And we start getting turned off to the idea of things having rewards. Uh, as if as if we've got the sense that in the real world, you're not going to be rewarded. You're just going to be expected to work. But that's not actually how we do things. I'm sorry if my employer doesn't reward me. I'm not showing up to do my job. I do my job because I get paid. And I suspect most of us are like that. So bless you, sister, who said I needed to do it for my own good. But no, I do it because I get paid. Um you know, it's funny that that kind of we're off in a bit of a tangent here, and I don't want people to think this is just going to be about math or or um, you know board games in particular. Any subject you can think of, and I mean that any subject you can think of that you might want to learn more about, there is a game out there that will help teach you. You want to improve hand-eye coordination? There are games, there are sports, there are video games. You want to learn history? You want to get better at literature? You want to improve your writing craft or your vocabulary or your spelling? All of those things. You want to do that in a foreign language? You want to learn a foreign language? You can do it through play. You can do it through games. And those will be the most effective ways to do it. And that's not just anecdotal. There is a growing body of research going back to the early 20th century, over a century of solid research that supports play as the most effective way to educate people. Whether it's yourself, your children, grandchildren, friends, nieces, nephews, cousins, whatever, play is how we do that. And so that's what we're going to try and cover in this in this podcast going forward. Some days we're going to have some interviews with experts. Some days we're going to discuss literature, scientific support for these ideas. Some days we're going to be talking about games to deal with certain topics, whether it's a reluctant student or you want to do a deep dive on the Peloponnesian War in ancient Greece. Um you want to make sure your kids know geography or can spell their way out of a paper bag without having to rely on spell check. There are ways to do that using games. Many of them are very inexpensive. Some of them can be time-consuming. Others take 20 minutes, 15 minutes. Do you have 15 minutes a week to spend with your kids that would help you build connections and improve them and their chances at leading a successful life? The more we can dive into the material, we hope you can take something from that and find one useful idea. Mm-hmm. So do you think we've sort of covered where we're, where we're going with this for the moment? I think for now, yeah. I mean, that makes a great inaugural um, post, and we can edit a lot of this out. <laughs> so um, maybe keep it as outtakes or something, but... I mean, I'm looking at the wall of role-playing game stuff here in our studio and the, the, the mountains of, of board games we have, of books, um, and just, we've got so much to cover. And that's before you get into things like theater games and um, how interviewing for a job is a game, succeeding in a job is a game. All of these things are systems with rules. Systems with rules can be exploited. But 
if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And if your kids aren't having fun in school, well, you can take the that's good for you, eat your spinach and learn to suck it up approach, as several of the dads I know tell their sons. And I think that's sad. We're here to have fun. We're here to enjoy the time we have, the world we have, and the people we're surrounded by. Mm -hmm. So if you can build connections to that world, to those people, if you can improve those connections by playing games, and I believe we can show you how to do that, I think you'll enjoy listening to this podcast. Okay, excellent. Well, we hope you have enjoyed today's discussion. All of the games that we've mentioned today can be found in the show notes. I will be going through this since I am the editor, and I will make sure that you can find all of them. If they're out of print, I can recommend eBay. Otherwise, I'll have links so that you can find out where you can find them. Uh, when we have articles, I'll make sure to include links to those too. Um, but now we would love to hear from you and find out what impact has play had on your life. Uh, please write to us. You can write to us at playedpod at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at playedpod. Please tell us your thoughts. Let us know what you'd like to hear about. And until next time, thanks for listening. Y'all take care. Bye.